What's going on? It's the Pete Callender Show. Thanks for listening. I am Pete, socially isolating, self-isolating for darn near a decade now. You can hear the latest episodes at thepetecallendershow.com and uh, any of your favorite podcasting platforms. Please subscribe to the podcast. I appreciate it. And um, you can join the Facebook group as well. The Pete Callender Show is the name of that group where we solve all of the world's problems. We have a lot of fun doing it. And even last night we did a, um, a live stream event. Uh, You can get access to more live stream events like that by going to the Patreon page, uh, like Mary and Marlon and Matthew and Meredith and Michelle all did. Thank you very much to all of the patrons uh, who helped make the show possible. Also, thank you to Mattress Man Stores. Uh, Mattress Man is... uh, they're local, locally owned. Chuck is the owner. And um, when I got laid off at the radio station and started this podcast endeavor, uh, he immediately asked to help. He wanted to be a part of it. Uh, and that's the kind of guy he is. He's the kind of guy that when the local charity needs beds for their shelter, Mattress Man Stores gives them the beds. And when veterans need jobs, he gives veterans jobs. And so, and when, you know, radio people need to start podcasts, he. <laughs> He helps them start a podcast. Also, they just redid their entire website, recognizing the current state of things, mattressmanstores.com. And uh, they know that, you know, the weeks ahead are going to be very difficult, particularly for local and family-owned businesses, social distancing, quarantines increasing. Um, The in-store traffic at their four locations in Asheville and Arden and Hendersonville, uh, they've all been impacted. Uh, So as more people are staying home, Mattress Man says, look, we're going to upgrade our website. And so this way, it's easier than ever for you to choose your best mattress from the comfort of your own home. And folks can buy online from the inventory that they have in stock right now. Uh, And if you're local, you get free white glove delivery. All right, you get the 120-day comfort guarantee, so it ensures that you're going to love your mattress. Uh, you have 120 days to to sleep on it and know for sure, um, because they know that you know good night's sleep it, it's critical. When you don't get a good night's sleep, it actually uh, decreases your lifespan. And in today's environment, uh, that's no bueno. So uh, visit mattressmanstores.com, click the shop online button, and then you can order right now. If you use the discount code RESTWELL, all one word, R-E-S-T-W-E-L-L, RESTWELL, get an additional 20% savings site-wide on the entire website. Okay, mattressmanstores.com, buy local, sleep better. Okay, so let's start with uh, with Senator Richard Burr, <laughs> U.S. Senator Richard Burr. Um, in case you are not aware of what has transpired in the last few uh, hours. Well, it started yesterday afternoon, and <clears throat> it started with a piece at NPR. They had gotten audio from some meeting that Burr, Senator Burr had uh, had spoken at back in uh, late February, so February 27th. I'm going to go through this timeline here. So the NPR story comes out first, followed almost immediately by a story at ProPublica a nonprofit newsroom that investigates abuses of power and uh, generally Republicans, and uh, they are closely tied to NPR. So when I read this one-two hit, I my immediate reaction is, 
regardless of uh, the uh, the merits of the story, which we'll get into here. But the two different stories coming from those two different sources, to me, obviously coordinated. They they pushed them out at the same time, same day, within hours of each other. To me, you don't get that lucky, both targeting one guy, uh, uh, particularly when you have NPR and ProPublica who work together on all sorts of stuff. So be that as it may, that's just sort of background media um opinion but uh so the merits of the story now that because there are two separate stories you have this uh the uh appearance before the north carolina state circle i think is what the group is called uh and then there is this other story of the selling off of stocks okay so february 6th i assume because it was published on the 7th so february 6th there is an op-ed that runs in where was it i have it here um in the stack of papers hang on hang on foxnews.com it ran on february 7th so i'm going to assume it was written no later than the 6th probably a day or two before then but i'm calling it february 6th um this was the uh this was the op-ed where senator burr says i'm going to give you sort of the highlights here because this is important because what the allegation is, is that Senator Burr knew that all of this was going to happen, lied to all of the American people about it, but then told some wealthy uh, uh, donors or something, something different, right? He, he told them, no, it's really going to get bad. And then he went and sold all of his stock because he knew it was going to be terrible. And he, he knew this was going to be terrible because he wrote legislation on how to address pandemics. And also, he serves on uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee, and he was getting briefings. And so apparently the allegation, although they don't actually state it, they just leave it like I just did. They say, well, he's on the Intelligence Committee getting daily briefings. Okay, I've been getting daily briefings, not from the intelligence community, but I've been reading every day about this stuff from CDC, the World Health Organization. So I'm getting information as well. And by the way, the stuff that Burr says to that group that uh, North Carolina state circle, uh, the stuff that he said just came from the CDC. Also, he didn't give them any, uh, any inside information. So Americans are, but the allegation here is that he did something unethical or illegal that he knew and he wasn't telling everybody. And if he had told everybody, we would totally be ready for it. Okay. Americans are rightfully concerned. This is what he and Senator Alexander, who is a Ted Alexander, I believe. Um, this is what they, uh, or Lamar Alexander, maybe. Okay, uh, yeah, Ted is the state senator, I think. I don't know. Americans are rightfully concerned about the coronavirus. There are 12 confirmed cases of this new infectious disease in the United States and the ability of the virus to rapidly spread in China where it has infected more than uh, 24,000 people, left almost 500 dead, is alarming. Okay, this is how they start their piece. Um, this is from February 6th. They say this is alarming. In an attempt to stop the spread of the virus, China has locked down 16 cities. 45 million people live there. The World Health Organization declared the coronavirus outbreak a global health emergency. The United States, along with Singapore, Australia, and Indonesia, all took the rational step of temporarily barring foreigners 
who have been to China in the last two weeks from entering our country. Uh, Thankfully, the United States today is better prepared than ever before to face emerging public health threats like the coronavirus, in large part due to the work of the Senate Health Committee, Congress, and the Trump administration. The work of Congress. So what is the vibe here, right? What is the purpose of his message? Is that, uh, look, GovCo will, this is the libertarian prophecy, of course, which is GovCo will protect you. And then, of course, when the catastrophe hits, GovCo can't protect you. This is what politicians do all the time. And if you're a Republican, you get chastised for it. If you're a Republican and you try to allay concerns and say, we're totally ready for all of this, you know, heck of a job, Brownie. If you're trying to do those things and uh, and uh, assuage the fears in the public and things get bad, uh, that's proof that you're corrupt and you're unethical and evil and you wanted people to die and you were lying to them. When Democrats do it, it's like, well, you know, they were just trying to, they were just trying to help. They were trying to, you know, manage the crisis and provide a solid, uh, steady hand on the leadership wheel, you know. The work of Congress and the administration has allowed the U.S. public health officials to move swiftly and decisively in the last few weeks. He then goes over a bunch of things that the government has done, like airport security, training state and local health departments, CDC development of a new diagnostic test, uh, the White House convening the uh, coronavirus task force, Health and Human Services declared a public health emergency. This is all from February 6th, right? All of these things they were doing in early February. These are not the actions of a government that doesn't think things might get bad. These are the actions of a government that is responding to rapidly changing developments. All of these steps are part of the response framework Congress has put in place to ensure we are prepared for disease outbreaks and other pu- uh, public health threats. And then they uh, they go on to talk about some of the legislative history. And then at the very end, they say, the public health preparedness and response framework that Congress has put in place and that the Trump administration is actively implementing today is helping to protect Americans. Over the years, the framework has been designed to be flexible and innovative so that we are not only ready to face the coronavirus today, but new public health threats in the future. Okay, so this is, to me, I've read so many of these types of statements from politicians and bureaucrats over the years. This is pretty boilerplate stuff. This is, we're taking steps to do the things. This is Governor Cooper's daily press conferences at the state level. That's what this is, okay? We are doing things. These things we are doing will prepare us, but it's going to be tough. GovCo, bureaucrats, politicians, they promise to protect when really what they're promising is to respond. That's really what's happening. This is this is a concept that a lot of Second Amendment folks inherently understand, I think, a little bit better. <laughs> you know, when a police officer is minutes away, right? Like, this is the difference, being protected or being able to respond. And this is what he... So he's, he's promoting the idea that government will protect us. As the libertarian in me would tell you, that is nearly impossible, particularly from the spread of a highly contagious virus. Okay, so this was the this was February 6th. Next up, a week later, a week later, Richard Burr, U.S. Senator, said an Intelligence Committee chairman sells somewhere around one and a half million, although they, they reported as a range. So it's between 628,000 and 1.7 million. That's the range. Uh, sells thirty in thirty three separate transactions. He sells uh, a significant percentage of his stocks, somewhere between six twenty eight 
and 1.7 million. 628,000 to 1.7 million. He did this on February 13th. Um, as the head of the Intelligence Committee, according to, this is uh, ProPublica, Burr has access to the government's most highly classified information about the threats to America's security. His committee was receiving daily coronavirus briefings around this time, according to a story at Reuters. So February 6th, he writes the op-ed. A week later, he sells all of his stock, or a lot of his stock. A week after that, now it's February 20th, and according to ProPublica, a week after Burr's sales, the stock market began a sharp decline and has lost about 30% since. So he sold a week before the market started tanking, which, by the way, does anybody else, any show of hands, anybody else concerned that the market was going to start tanking in, you know, mid-February, late February? So, like, what are we talking about? Four weeks ago. Four weeks ago, did anybody think that the markets might tank? I guess maybe if you were minimizing this, if you were saying that, oh, this isn't going to be a big deal, maybe if you thought it wasn't going to be a big deal, you were listening to guys like Hannity tell you it wasn't going to be a big deal. Like, if you, if that's the case, then, yeah, maybe you, maybe this looks way more suspicious. But if you are Richard Burr and you are obviously talking in a February 6th uh, op-ed about how uh, this is going to be uh, a very big um this is going to be, you know, this is this is alarming, he said. And we're doing everything we can to stop the spread of the virus. Right? But maybe he was gambling with his stocks. Isn't that the whole point of the stock market? Like, you look around, you see things, and you're like, all right, let's buy and sell, depending on how you think things are about to go. <clears throat> so that's February 20th. February 27th, Burr gave this... Uh, what, what ProPublica calls a VIP group at an exclusive social club gave them a much more dire preview of the economic impact of the coronavirus than what he had told the public. Okay, so this occurs on February 27th. So three weeks after he writes the op-ed, he does this speech that uh, NPR covers. NPR does this story, um, and he calls it uh, akin to the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. Okay, that's what the big NPR uh, scoop is. That they got audio from this uh, from this meeting. All right, so February 27th, three weeks. Did anything change between February 6th and February 27th? In the three weeks between his op-ed and his speech, did anything change on the ground? Did we learn anything new about the coronavirus? Did it become I don't know different? It seems to me like it did. It seems to me like the, like every single day things were changing. And so by the time he goes and he speaks February 27th, the end of the month, right? By the time he goes and does that speech, there are a lot of new developments. There's a lot of new data. At this point now, you know, China's got uh, way more people infected. It's now spreading across Europe and such. According to the NPR report, Burr told attendees at the luncheon held at the Capitol Hill Club, quote, there's one thing I can tell you about this. It is much more aggressive in its transmission than anything that we have seen in recent history. It's probably more akin to the 1918 pandemic, the Spanish flu. Okay, that's what the CDC was saying two days prior. That's what they were saying. So Burr is telling these people the same thing that the CDC is telling everybody. 
again, like this, to me, this NPR story is really not a lot of anything, really. To me, like to me, they're trying to piggyback off of the stock sale, which raises questions, no doubt about it. And even Richard Burr now has said uh, he's asked for a Senate ethics investigation, although he says the reason I started selling this stuff was because I was watching CNBC's daily updates and I was watching all of the impact on the markets. And I said, you know what? I'm going to sell my stock. It wasn't any inside information because that's the allegation, by the way. The allegation is that he has some sort of inside info that nobody else had. And he took that inside info and made money off of it rather than watching what we all can watch and listen to and make a decision based on that. Now, I don't know how you prove short of disclosing like what was actually said in those uh, intelligence briefings, getting minutes of the briefings and seeing what was in there. He warned at this meeting, though, on the 27th, he warned that companies might have to curtail their employees' travel, that schools could close, and that mil- uh, the military might be mobilized to compensate for overwhelmed hospitals. All of that was known, folks. Like, this seemed, this seems like a lot of people who weren't paying attention a month ago that now all of a sudden think that he had some inside track to this stuff. We all we were all aware. I was aware of this stuff. Yeah, th- yeah, travel might be uh, impacted. Yeah, um, it already was. They had already shut down travel from China and anybody who had been to the area. He says, oh, sorry, it was called the Tar Heel Circle. The Tar Heel Circle, a club for businesses and organizations in North Carolina that are charged up to $10,000 for membership and are promised interaction with top leaders and staff from Congress, the administration, and the private sector. Now, uh, it's also interesting to note here, this is ProPublica's description of it. Hang on a second. There's another. (laughs) There was another description of it. Hang on. I've got so much here. Ah. This is from the News and Observer. NPR said it received the audio from an attendee at the event, which was attended by non-members, including bipartisan congressional staff. It was not an open media event. Well, now that sounds a little different than uber-rich people, you know, uh, Monty Burns, uh, Mr. Burns from The Simpsons, like, are all hanging out at their secret meeting and they're talking about how everyone's going to die, but you guys need to sell and make all the money. <laughs> right? Like, this is the this is the vibe that they're that they're giving. Now, I asked yesterday, well, wait a minute. Governor's people were there. Where's Governor Cooper's people on this? Were they not aware of this information? If Richard Burr was giving them inside info, then why wouldn't the governor have relayed that to us? Right? If Richard Burr did something wrong by telling people at this meeting, hey guys, I know everybody is like not panicking, but you should totally panic. Like if that's the message he was trying to convey, why did our governor not convey it either? Um, Burr's public comments, this is, so this, so the word you're going to hear often is dire. That's the way that they're uh, describing that Tar Heel Circle meeting at the Capitol Hill Club. Um, that uh, that this is dire. They keep calling it dire. The, the bias is in the adjectives. It's a, These are dire warnings. Burr's public comments had been considerably less dire. In a February 7th op-ed that he co-authored with another senator, he assured the public that the U.S. Uh, today is better prepared than ever before to face emerging public health threats like the coronavirus. That's that's not contradictory, folks. Just because we're in a better position to be able to combat it doesn't mean that it's not going to have an impact. And by the way, again, that was 
three weeks before he gave this talk. Three weeks prior. And again, a lot changed in three weeks. Most notably, we started seeing actual information and not just simply relying on China's lies. Right? Look, I understand it's very difficult here to understand and to get a grip on what all is real and what is not, particularly when it comes from China. Like, I get that. But to now start blaming people because they were relying on World Health Organization information, I don't think it's fair in in hindsight. Um, let me see here. This is from the News and Observer's Brian Murphy, who's recapping all of this. Um I think it's interesting that he calls, uh, they do reference it as the Spanish flu pandemic in the News and Observer, which as I understand it, like Wikipedia has now taken it down, taken the word Spanish out of, (laughs) they're calling it the influenza, influenza pandemic of 1918, I think is what they've changed it to, because, you know, racism and all. Um, So it's also interesting the way that the rewrite occurs, because this is the, this is today's article, very lengthy, where he puts all of these stories together. The original story, he called it NPR published snippets of audio snippets of audio you might say selectively edited audio snippets of audio but now today it just becomes npr audio the original story talked about how uh the audio came from an attendee uh it was attended by non-members including bipartisan congressional staff that gets cut from today's article as well Different, because I would argue these are pretty important things to leave in because they provide some bit of context. By the way, keep in mind here that if the U.S. senator is forced to resign his seat as the Democrats are screaming for him to do, that's what, by the way, that's the spoiler alert, Democrats want him to quit. Democrats say that the only thing Richard Burr uh, can do in order to uh, placate their mob is to resign the seat and walk away right now and retire because he's not running again for re-election. He's out in 2022. And you know what happens if he resigns his seat, right? Democratic Governor Roy Cooper makes the appointment to replace him. Gee, do you think there might be an ulterior motive in all of this? Do you think that maybe, maybe there may be a benefit to Democrats calling for Burr's head on a, uh, on a spike or pike, depending on, uh, you know, what uh, century you're alive in. Uh, do you think there may be some, some self-interest involved? I think there may be just a tad. Just a tad. It's all about the Supreme Court. You get Burr out, now you can block any other appointment that, uh, that Trump would make, particularly maybe to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? Um. All right, back to News and Observer story. Burr wrote the legislation. This is interesting. They keep mentioning this in all of the stories, that Burr wrote the legislation on how the U.S. is to handle pandemics. The Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness and Advancing Innovation Act, it was signed into law in 2019, is an update of previous legislation from Richard Burr, which became law in 2006 and was reauthorized in 2013. So I read this passage, and I understand like they keep putting it in there, because they say they're saying like you know Burr's an expert on this stuff. See, so he knew it was going to be this bad. Well, if that's the case, wouldn't he know then to sell? Right? If he is the expert, and like if this has been his area of expertise in drafting this legislation, 
maybe it makes sense then that he's looking at the media reports and he's thinking, this looks like it's going to be really bad. This is like the stuff that I was drafting. These are like the worst case scenarios that we were talking about for all of these years while we drafted this legislation. This is what it looks like. I should probably sell all of my stocks. Or or are you saying that he should not have sold the stock, that he should have just sucked it up, take the losses like everybody else, even though he thinks that he shouldn't? Look, if there's information from the Intelligence Committee briefings, aside from some sort of a generalized, hey, things could get bad, and if it gets bad, this is what it could look like. At the end of the day, he's got to make a guess. That's what the stock market is. He's making a guess. Unless they're saying, we have direct evidence that this is about to happen. And, uh, you know, if you have stock in these sectors, you might want to reconsider holding on to those. Unless there's some sort of direct evidence, I'm not exactly sure why everybody is so outraged, except, of course, for the appearance of it. The appearance makes it look nefarious because he sold the stock. He also gave the speech. And by the way, if he had never gave the speech, people wouldn't would this even have landed like it did? Because, by the way, there are a bunch of other there's like three or four other senators who have also sold their stock. And the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, the DSCC, their comms director is all over North Carolina's social media today promoting how uh, promoting this story and saying, you know, uh, Burr needs to resign and all these Republicans that sold their stock, they're traitors, they need to resign. Well, she fails to mention at every single turn, Dianne Feinstein was also one of the senators that sold stock. And after doing so, the companies that she had stock in, uh, they, they lost like 20, 25% of their value too. Selling before a crisis, you know, timing the market is not in and of itself proof of prior knowledge. People make these sorts of bets all the time on stocks. Now, if they're, look, investigate, yeah, I'd like to know, sure, look at the transcripts, find out what he knew, when he knew it, and all of that. I'm fine with all of that. But um, you know me, I give people the benefit of the doubt. I try to, at least. I'm a giver. Um... Let's see here. Oh, this was interesting from the AP. There is no indication that Burr had any inside information as he sold the stocks and issued the private warnings. <laughs> so you got to wait. You got to wait almost 36 hours later or so before you find before you get anywhere close to a story that actually mentions. Yeah, there's actually no indication that he had this prior knowledge. The intelligence panel did not have any briefings on the pandemic the week when most of the stocks were sold. <laughs> so he sold his stocks a week when they didn't have meetings, but you're trying to say that he sold the stocks because he was given information during these meetings. <laughs> so what, they gave him the info and then he waited a week and then sold everything? Well, you know, he did that, Pete, in order to make it look better. Okay, well, maybe he did. Look, if you're trying to be prepared, right, you're, you're paying attention to this stuff. You know who's been paying attention to this stuff for a long time is uh, Tim over at Old Grouch's Military Surplus. Are you prepared for disaster? Do you need some advice for how to get through all of this? Like, what do you need? Do you need the masks and such? Tim had a bunch of the masks. He got like one of the last shipments in before uh, everybody started buying them all up. And that was a month ago. For more than three decades, the answer to your questions has been Old Grouch's military surplus in downtown Clyde. It is an old-school, traditional military surplus store with a mix of modern and vintage items. Go see my friend Tim. He'll hook you up, uh, but make sure you use the hand sanitizer you know, before you uh, go into the 
building. Uh, he gets new stuff all the time. It's American-made because it's real military surplus. Stuff like camouflage, shirts, hats, customized dog tags, gear. It's all at Old Grouch's. You can also go to the website at oldgrouch.com, oldgrouch.com. And if Tim doesn't have it, he can get it for you. Use the promo code PETE, get 10% off, or just mention my name when you go into the store as well, uh, oldgrouch.com. He'll ship it directly to you. Old school military surplus with a mix of modern and vintage. So if you were not able to dump all of your uh, stock last month, what's being done to help you? What's being, what is GovCo looking to do to help all of us, the little people? Well, how about a trillion-dollar economic stimulus plan? The largest portion of the package is $500 billion for two rounds of direct payments to individual taxpayers with the first round of checks issued uh, beginning April 6th, the second round beginning May 18. The payments would be fixed and tiered based on income level and family size, the plan says. Um, we are at the point now, it's called helicopter money. If you're going to drop the money on all of our heads, just drop the money. This tying it to income levels of two years ago, I will tell you, my income two years ago, much higher than it is right now. So if I'm going to get a check based on my income level from two years ago, I'm going to be kind of ticked off. Now, I'm not going to begrudge other people who got more, but that's not an ideal way to do it. If you've already determined, we've already determined what we are. Now we're just haggling over price, right? <laughs> so if this is the case, I would recommend you just do flat checks for everybody. Just if it's going to be helicopter money, just do helicopter money. Joining me now is Ross Marchand. He is the director of policy for the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. That website is protectingtaxpayers.org. He is also a contributor to Young Voices, that website, young-voices.com. And we welcome him to the show. Ross, thanks so much for taking some time to join us. Thanks. Great to be on your show. So first, tell us a little bit about what is the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. What do you all do and what do you do for them? Sure. Well, at the Taxpayers Protection Alliance, we're really devoted to answering one question above all else. What is your government doing? What is your government up to? Federal, state, and local level. And I think that at a time of unprecedented crisis, uh, such as this one, in response to the coronavirus pandemic, um, I don't think there's ever been a more important question as the government, governments at all levels try to figure out how to contain the spread and keep the economy afloat. Do you think this is... Uh a generationally defining event like 9-11, like the Kennedy assassination. It absolutely is. Uh, the worst public health emergency in my lifetime, I say that as a 27-year-old, um, but people who are older than me, a generation or even two generations older than me say that as well. Um, it is absolutely a defining um, event or series of events. We will be talking about it for a very long time to come and how we respond both how we've responded over the past few weeks and how we continue to respond will shape American society for decades to come. Uh, and I'll tell you, as a Gen Xer, I'm not aware of, I mean, there wasn't anything in my lifetime that I remember. The closest thing may have been the the uh, the gas crisis, but I was a kid. I was, you know, four years old or something like that when that was happening and that people were waiting in gas lines. Um, so I don't have any memory of anything like this. I recall, obviously, 9-11. Uh, but it, it it never seemed like there was kind of no end in sight to 
the economic impact. It seemed like, well, we were attacked and now we'll recover and everybody was kind of, you know, pulling in the same direction. And now it seems like nobody really has a clear understanding of how long this is going to go and how bad this is going to be. And there's a lot of uncertainty and markets do not like uncertainty. I do know that. <laughs> uh, that's right. That's right. So, does the, do, so does the federal government's actions so far with the stimulus uh, phases that they've announced and they've uh, enacted two of the three so far, uh, does this provide the market some certainty and the public some certainty in your opinion? Things have really, really been a mixed bag so far. So some of the early spending, and this is a learning curve, right, for all of us as well as the federal, state, and local governments. The first package, right, was signed into law by the president, I believe, on March 6th, about two weeks ago. And that provided $8.3 billion in funding. And a lot of it was basically just tied over, for example, health and human services, uh, tied over state and local public health departments. So a lot of that early response was the federal government saying, we don't really know what to do. We're going to empower some people close to the situation, and we're just going to give a lot of money basically in slush funds um, so people could try to figure out what they're doing, which, again, is a mixed bag. A lot of that money is probably going to be misspent, but no one really knew what to do. And I think as time goes on, you're seeing people try to develop sort of a more informed, more thorough and comprehensive response to this. So the uh, so the first phase was two and a half billion dollars uh, proposed by the president. That then escalated to over eight billion. Uh, it right. went for the CDC and the FDA, National Institutes of Health, the State Department, the Small Business Administration, uh, the U.S. Agency for International Development. It also had a bunch of money uh, to make coronavirus tests available. Another billion dollars in loan subsidies for small businesses. Um, so uh, this was, again, as you mentioned, uh, two weeks ago, March 6th, and a lot of people want to say that nothing was done, nothing has been done. There, there were steps that started to get taken. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of our policy and our response was, was caught off guard because we believed the World Health Organization in China, which big mistake there but uh, (laughs) i think a lot of people got uh, a lot of people got blindsided because of that so then then we have this next phase that happened uh this week which is phase two and this was the deal that was negotiated between the treasury secretary steven mnuchin and the house speaker nancy pelosi um but as i understand it we're not really clear how much that bill is going to cost at this point right and it seems like preliminary estimates and all the emphasis on the world on preliminary is a little bit over a hundred billion dollars. And the key aspect of that bill, that's phase two, right? The Mm -hmm. coronavirus relief that's paid family leave and paid medical leave. And basically it's a huge mandate on businesses that hire 500 or fewer workers. And it says to these businesses, um, give up to uh, three months of, paid family and medical leave to your employees at two-thirds salary, and we'll tide you over uh, to accommodate those expenses. So we'll waive your payroll tax liability um, in funding this huge, huge mandate. And if it takes more money than you have in payroll tax liability, we'll just send you a check directly. So it's a huge government spending package, and it's basically um, encouraging employees, not just employees who test positive for the coronavirus, um, but any employee who has received basically any sort of direction from anybody um, to stay at home for the time being. And it says if you fall into that category or if you're just directly you yourself or your family afflicted with coronavirus, 
stay home, don't work, and get two-thirds pay for up to three months, uh, mainly on the taxpayer's dime. Uh, Free coronavirus testing also included for the uninsured, as you mentioned, the paid sick and family leave. Um, Also, uh, additional federal funding for Medicaid, food security programs like SNAP or what people uh, have referred to, you know, food stamps or EBT. It's now called uh, Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program or SNAP, uh, increased unemployment insurance benefits. Um, So are we all Keynesians now in crisis? Is that what happens here? Oh, man, what a question. Uh, Well, to an extent. Uh, But we don't have to get carried away here, right? Because there's a difference between helping people out temporarily and really targeting that aid towards people who need it the most, right? And that's what people are talking about right now as a segue into the third relief package, which they're desperately trying to cobble together and Congress is talking about it. And this is really the difference between a targeted temporary response and an open-ended, really Keynesian response. The emphasis has to be on helping people out temporarily. And for example, if you're going to give checks to people in the mail, make sure it's income-based and really focus on people who are unemployed. And in terms of uh, businesses, because a lot of businesses are really struggling, a large um, a large impact, by the way, of government mandates restricting traveling and like going out to bars and restaurants is we'll give you money, uh, but on an interest-free loan basis, not just unconditionally hand out cash. Now, to be sure, a lot of people are proposing out there that we just give everyone cash unconditionally, families, individuals, and businesses. But at the Taxpayers Protection Alliance, we're trying to go a more pragmatic route and a more targeted route to make sure that people who are feeling this the hardest, right, and and businesses that are the hardest hit are getting the help they need. But it's not an open-ended entitlement that taxpayers will be forced to foot the bill for for generations. And that's a very, very important distinction. So no to the helicopter money idea right no hel- exactly <laughs> no helicopter money right um, for folks who aren't aware yeah descri- helicopter money is when uh, essentially like uh, was i think it was milton freeman said you'd be better off just dropping money from helicopters on top of people <laughs> that's the way you're gonna do <laughs> right. it right yeah and understandably it's a very popular idea but we preach targeting helping out people who need it the most instead of an open-ended entitlement um a hand up not a handout so how do you go about then administering something like that? How do you know? I mean, you've got obviously the unemployment uh, system, but that's that stuff is state run. So so what direct payments from the federal government to the states to the unemployed folks or or what? I mean, how, how, how do you how do you envision that happening? It depends on the program for unemployment insurance. It is because it's a federalist project. Uh federal government and states working together, it would have to be payments to states. Mm -hmm. And by the way, when it comes to payments to states for things like unemployment insurance, um, there is going to be some state experimentation. And that's a good thing um, because not all states are the same. Not all states have the same needs. Uh, So we welcome any and all experimentation on that. And then there's going to be more just purely federal government endeavors. And that will be, for example, the third phase of this coronavirus relief package is going to be just directly mailing Uh, checks to people. And that's where you need to have some sort of income eligibility and uh, verification very, very quickly. Now, we know for a fact the federal government is capable of doing that. So, for example, in food stamps, the food stamps program for for decades, I mean, we've been seeing um, expedited, very fast, under a week, um, verification of income. And once... um, 
an individual is trying to get money um, and be eligible for food stamps, they just need to show uh, to a government worker, government agency, that they don't have enough money in the bank to tie them over for expenses and they don't have enough um, paycheck income coming in. And we've seen experience shows that the government can respond to that quickly um, and give people a stamp of approval. And there could be audits after, but we need to make sure that we're verifying as quickly as possible and then doing a beefed up audit effort to make sure that there aren't um, scammers um, who are exploiting the system down the road. Not to engage in nepotism here, but my dad had an idea. I'll run it past you. Right, refund all federal income taxes, both business and personal, because the IRS already has all of your banking information to just do electronic funds transfers, to just say, okay, all the money that we collected last year for income taxes uh, or a percentage of it, just refund it right back. Definitely open to the idea. Um, another very straightforward proposal is just putting people on holiday from paying taxes. Um, already the payment deadline um, for taxes and tax season has been extended for three months um, until July 15th. Uh, so that's one really important part of the equation. Um, another thing is potentially perhaps uh, temporarily suspending payroll taxes. Get money in the hands of the people that earn that money um, as quickly as possible. So, and all right, so, and that does help people who are already uh, and still drawing checks, but somebody like myself, for example, I'm self employed. So, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, like my payroll taxes really don't exist <laughs> at this yeah. point. So, yeah, yeah. so where is, Absolutely. you know, where is my check, so to speak? The problem for self-employed people is it is possible, but it is very difficult for self-employed people to get unemployment or any sort of assistance um, when their income is down. Um, So one way where we could ease up that concern, ease up that burden on self-employed people and level the playing field a little bit is make it easier for self-employed people to get onto the unemployment insurance system. Um, and temporary uh, waive any sort of requirement that in order to get unemployment insurance benefits, you need to just be a regular worker. So I think that would be a, a huge help to a lot of people who operate in the gig economy right. and who get contract income and don't get regular salary income. Right. There have been tons of people I've seen that that are, you know, uh, obviously I'm aware of servers, you know, waiters, waitresses, they've already been let go. Uh, part of the problem there is that uh, they are hopefully going to get their jobs back at some point mm-hmm. and their employers want to hire them back. But right now they can't. And so are they going to go look for work in the meantime? And then how do you do that? How do you go out? How do you go look for a job when nobody wants anybody walking in their front door at this point in time? Everybody is socially distancing and self-isolating. So who's going to, who's going to offer a job interview under those circumstances, under these circumstances? Exactly right. And that's why we need to have robust unemployment insurance systems across the country. And that is a federal and state partnership, right? It needs to remain as such. And states are going to experiment in different ways with unemployment insurance in terms of waiving different requirements, um, having different incentives. All of that is welcome, but we need to make sure that we have that system of helping people at this time when everyone needs help in some way. Um, what of the bailouts for the various industries? Um, this phase three has, uh, what, 50 billion for the airline industry. There's like another 150 billion for hotels and casinos, cruise line operators. I mean, the cruise line operators, 
they've been getting nailed on this for months now, right? I mean, they they, they were sort of the, the the first affected industry uh, by this stuff. So, uh, so what what's the what what's your take on these bailouts for these particular industries? Well, we have to be important. We have to pursue transparency if we're going to give any money out to any industries. Um, and that's where, uh, for example, like a transparency website would come in handy so taxpayers could see where their money is going. It's okay, I think, to lend a temporary helping hand to some of these businesses, especially in a lot of cases. Businesses cannot function as usual because the government is saying you cannot use your private property to serve customers, to provide products and services to customers. And there is long-standing legal tradition that if the government comes in and limits those options uh, for companies to help out customers, then there should be some sort of compensation provided by the government and this is the time right if it was ever the time for that sort of thing to kick into effect now is the time it does not mean we cannot be careful and that we should not pursue transparency we should absolutely pursue transparency in giving this temporary hand up to businesses I mentioned earlier whether uh, you thought or I asked you if this uh, was a generationally defining moment I'm wondering what impact it has and if you have any thoughts on the impact it has on this gig economy that has really grown over the past decade. And the, you know, you're of a younger generation. This is, uh, you know, for me, a little bit older and for the, you know, baby boom generation, much older. They, they see a big transition, a big shift in uh, the way people work. Uh, whereas, you know, your generation, you're just, you know, you, you're like fish in water. You don't even realize you're wet. Like, uh, that's just kind of the way things have, have been. Do you think, though, that this, alters perceptions of uh, the kinds of jobs people want to take in the future? In other words, do you go now and abandon the gig economy in uh, in pursuit of uh, stability and, you know, health and benefits and, the you know, paycheck and big companies and stuff? Like, is there this sort of uh, return to uh, a mentality that a lot of baby boomers actually had? I think that people... Um are, have been, will continue to be scared, particularly gig workers with no uh, stable source of income. But even in this sort of challenge, there is an opportunity uh, for people to pivot and say, what do people need now? Um, so, for example, there are a lot of e-commerce jobs in the, in the digital and um, in, in the gig economy that focuses on helping people um, get their stuff online through supply chains, right? So there are, there's a lot of contract work to be had there, for example, and in educating people online and in pursuing all sorts of digital opportunities. So even though it's a crisis for workers in the gig economy, it is absolutely also an opportunity to re-pivot lines of work and try to discover how to adapt in a time when everyone's habits are changing very quickly. Ross Marchand is the Director of Policy for the Taxpayers Protection Alliance and, again, the website protectingtaxpayers.org. Ross, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks. Great to be on your show. All right, and what what else is going on? So the Federal Reserve this week uh, made an announcement that uh, it will do quantitative easing, a new round of quantitative easing. It was an emergency move. The Federal Reserve announced that it's dropping its benchmark interest rate down to 0%. The QE program, quantitative easing, will entail $700 billion worth of asset purchases entailing treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Markets responded negatively. Uh, Dow Futures uh dropped like a thousand points almost when the markets opened earlier this week. 
The new federal funds rate used as a benchmark both for short-term lending for financial institutions and as a peg to many other consumer rates will now be targeted at zero to a quarter percent to 0.25, zero percent to 0.25 percent. That is down from the previous target range of one to 1.25. Some people are worried now that there's not going to be any arrows left in the Federal Reserve's quiver. Okay, the actions by the Fed appeared to be the largest single day set of moves that the bank had ever taken, mirroring in many ways its efforts during the financial crisis that were rolled out over several months. Uh, that was a decade ago or so, uh, and it took a long time for all of these different steps to be implemented. But this week, the Federal Reserve said, we're just going to do everything that we did during the financial crisis. We're going like, to do it all at once. Um, Which, by the way, uh, there's another uh, idea here that the Fed can and should support state government efforts to respond to the outbreak. This is a piece, by the way, that last uh, uh, piece uh, that I read to you came from CNBC. Uh, This is uh, from uh, two individuals named Skanda Amarnath with Employee America and Yaakov Fagan from the Bergruen Institute. They are a bit of monetary experts, and they say that the Federal Reserve needs to exercise its existing authority under Section 14.2b of the Federal Reserve Act to immediately commit to purchasing short-term municipal debt security, or munis, as is necessary in order to, one, stabilize all state government uh, and their funding needs, two, provide the states with appropriate financial flexibility to address the present public health crisis. The Fed can commit to this policy immediately, unlike other types of Fed interventions that require additional approval from the Secretary of the Treasury. And if the Federal Reserve committed to making such financing available to state governments, it could influence market conditions instantly, even if full implementation required additional time. So that would be a way to see some immediate impact, even if it takes time to roll this thing out. This is a way to sort of backstop a lot of the states that are experiencing uh, problems and will be experiencing problems. Uh, All of this is to say, and not to be all Senator Richard Burr about it, but uh, the interest rates being low, that actually might help a lot of people who have been thinking about buying or selling a house at some point this year, because when we come out of this, the interest rates are going to be at historic lows again. You might want to consider purchasing a home. And if you are, then that means, yes, you call Rowena Patton and the All-Star Powerhouse team at 333-4483. MountainHomeHunt.com is their website. Put Rowena Patton and her team to work for you, buying or selling, okay? She is part of this community. She is an awesome real estate agent. She outsells 99% of the realtors in North Carolina, and she's the only agent that I would use to buy or sell a house. Christy and I were actually getting ready to do just that, and then I got laid off in January. But uh, call Rowena today, 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com. You can also go and check out their listing storyboards for more information on homes at listingstoryboard.com. She also wrote a best-selling book on selling homes, packed with buyer and seller-centric programs. Five-star reviews. Yeah. Call Rowena Patton and the All-Star Powerhouse team, 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com, and start packing. What else? Uh, This is a piece by Steve Cortez, says three bold economic proposals for virus response. Uh, He says, in terms of fiscal measures, it's far better to temporarily overreact rather than underwhelm. 
Why? Because confidence remains critical to prosperity. Belief begets belief. As optimism spurs buying and investing and hiring, a virtuous cycle commences, which then encourages more of the same. When people feel confident, they engage in more commerce. Um, he mentions the Federal Reserve rates are near zero. Um, calls for large-scale government purchases of stocks or corporate debt might reward institutions, but will fail to stabilize our most vulnerable working-class citizens. He says income tax suspension for middle and lower brackets. Cut the payroll tax. It's a good start, but it's not enough. For all of the highest income brackets, there should be zero federal taxes. Uh, for Sorry, for all but the highest income brackets, there should be zero federal taxes collected for an indefinite time. Give the Secretary of the Treasury control over when regular tax rates resume. Number two, he says, double unemployment insurance payments. Since the 0% tax rate's not immediately going to assist everybody suddenly out of work, temporary assistance to the displaced has to grow massively. Like the tax suspension, this temporary benefit should revert to prior policy once taxes resume for middle and lower income citizens. Think of the hardworking Americans that all got let go right now. Like just from restaurants alone. They deserve our help. Our economy will need them when this crisis abates. Also, he says student loan payments. Suspend them. Suspend student loan payments. The most obvious objection to these plans will be the required borrowing and debt expansion. But given the plunge in global yields, this is the time for America to borrow. The costs of capital have never been lower. He says, I believe in capitalism and free markets. We have an economy to serve a, citizen, a, a citizenry, not the other way around. In times of global tumult, like the present crisis, only the American government can take the kind of decisive action to literally save our economic way of life. What do you think? Join the conversation at the Facebook group, thepetecalendarshow.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and give it a thumbs up in the reviews. I appreciate it and consider becoming a patron of the program. Uh, you can get all of the links to everything at thepetecalendarshow.com. Thank you so much for the support. We'll talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone. <laughs>